Good morning. We are so glad that you could be with us this Sunday morning. We're in a sermon series just this week and next week. Uh, recipes, if you will, for those things that get better with age. We're, we're in First Timothy chapter 5, if you have your Bible. And First Timothy, remember, Paul is kind of a traveling evangelist, right? He's, he's going around planting churches, missionary journeys, planting churches. Well, on this fourth missionary journey, he takes his young apprentice, Timothy, with him. And they stop off in Ephesus, and he leaves Timothy in Ephesus to, to work with this church that's there, and he's going on to Macedonia. Now, I don't know how long Paul thought he was going to be gone, but he was gone longer than he thought he was. And so he's writing this letter we call First Timothy to his apprentice Timothy, giving him instructions on how to run the church. Now, you know, if I'm gone, the instructions are very simple. Get somebody to preach. But like when Karen Donaldson, Karen is in our first service, Karen Donaldson, she's the, kind of the glue that keeps this church together. And when Karen is gone, she has to leave us a whole list of things. You know, if this goes wrong, call this person. If that goes wrong, call that person. I mean, there's a whole long list when Karen is gone of what we need to do in the event of something terrible happening in the church and who to call and what to do and all of those things. Well, Paul is giving instructions to Timothy. This is how you run a church, Timothy. And really, it, the three main thrusts of the letter are refute false teaching. Sometimes people in church will come up with some cuckoo ideas. And you need to refute false teaching. And then he says you need to, to supervise the affairs of the church. And that's always important for a pastor, you know, to oversee what's going on. Again, this year has been crazy, as Doc alluded to, you know, whatever. And then, and then the third thing he says is appoint quality leaders. He's telling Timothy, this is not a, a one-man show, not a one-woman show. You need to have leaders helping out, and, and you need to appoint quality leaders. Well, buried in there is this instructions to Timothy about generational dynamics. And it's really kind of interesting. There's only six chapters in the entire book or letter. There's only six main sections. And he devotes the entire chapter five to these uh, generational group dynamics. And, and he's saying, you know, really what it, what it is, what it takes to be a good church in Ephesus, what he'd tell us, what it takes to be a good church in Flint, is that these generations recognize and see the importance of one another. It's prioritizing the generational dynamics. That's what makes a good church, is what he's saying. This is how he, he says it in verse 1. Do not rebuke older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Paul mentions four age groups. Older men are fathers, older women are mothers, younger men are brothers, younger ladies are sisters. Four age groups. Fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers. That's who he's talking about. And he's using this familial family type of language in this letter. He, he's saying the churches needs to be a family. You need to treat one another as family. Uh, he's saying we really need each other. It's kind of the same language that we use. You know, we have a committee on our board called the Growing Together Committee, and it's based on the Growing Young materials that we did a few years ago. And it's saying what this whole committee is, is formed for. is saying our young people are important. And we need to hear them and listen to them 
and, and help them and love them and care for them. But the committee is also saying our older people are important. We need to hear them and listen to them and care for them and love them. That, that everybody, the church when it's operating the best, is when everyone is caring for one another. And so this growing together uh, uh, emphasis is saying what that means is, kind of warm is the new cool. It doesn't matter if you have smoke machines. What matters is do people feel like, like it's family when they come in, that it's warm. It's saying we want to prioritize families, be, be, be mindful of families. It's empathizing with today's youth. If it's been a while since you've been in high school, high school has changed since you were there last. And we need to recognize that and empathize with today's youth and some of the, the challenges that they face. It's saying we want to provide keychain leadership. That means we want to give places of service and leadership and mentoring and all those things that go together. It's saying that we want to be a, a church that is the best neighbors. We care for the people who are living around us. And, and finally, of course, it's, it's taking Jesus' message seriously. That's what growing together is. Really, it boils down to we want to be a family. A family that we're all on the same page, we're all together, we're loving each other, and we're, and we're loving our neighbors and, and our community. That's what, that's what this is all about. And that's really what Paul is saying here for the church at Ephesus. You need to be a family. When I started pastoring the Metropolitan Church in Nazarene in Roseville, Michigan, I got there and I did a demographic study. Of, or I, I looked up the, the stats in our little city there, and I discovered that, that we had more children in our neighborhood where the church was located than any other, any other section of the city. Our neighborhood had the most kids. That's the good news. The bad news is we only had one kid from our neighborhood coming to the church. And so, so and I've told you before, we, so we ended up, we, there was a school across the, the playground from where the church was located. We started an after-school club called the Blast Bible and Life After School Thursday, B-L-A-S-D, Blast. And we ended up having like about 100 kids coming to, to the church every Thursday. Uh, for, for this kind of mini VBS that we did every single Thursday. Well, before we started, I went to some of our senior adults and I said, listen, we need more families in our church. We, we, need, to, we need, you know, if our church is going to keep on going, we've got to have some young families here. And I said, here's the, here's the bad news. You know, we don't have enough families in our church. Here's the good news. We have more kids in our neighborhood than any other neighborhood in the entire city. And so then I said, so... When we start having new families come to our church, and I didn't know if we were going to ever have new families come to our church. I said, but when they come, if they come, when they come, I need you to treat them like they were your family. I need you to treat them like they were your grandkids or your kids that were coming in. And if your kids or grandkids, who maybe they're wayward, if your kids are grandkids who haven't been in church in a while, if they came to church, you wouldn't care what they were wearing. You wouldn't care if they had, you know, tattoos from head to toe and earrings every place that isn't even an ear. You wouldn't care about that. I said, you'd be just happy they were here. And if they came in and you were sitting on the edge, if it was your kids or grandkids, if you were sitting on the edge of the pew, what would you do? You'd scooch to the middle and say, sit here, sit with me. I'm so glad you're here. I said, that's how you need to treat these new families that are going to come. I didn't know if there was going to be any new families coming. That's how you need to be. Well, there was a couple of ladies. They were sisters, Pauline and Georgia. Pauline and Georgia, they, they, they didn't have any kids in the youth group. Their kids, you know, their grandkids were out of youth group when I was there. But they took that serious. And they started caring for our teenagers. And they started loving our teenagers. And then when our teenagers were going to go on a, on a trip, 
you know, like wherever, Cedar Point or on a mission trip or whatever. Pauline and Georgia would show up before they'd go. And they'd get everybody together. I didn't ask them to come. They'd just show up. And, and they would get all the teenagers together and they would say, all right, we all got to hold hands. Pauline was a prayer warrior. Georgia was a little quiet. Pauline was the outgoing one. She'd go, all right, everybody hold hands, hold hands. And she'd start praying. And she'd just pray. And she'd start naming off every one of the kids. And if she got to a kid who was like a, a friend of somebody who was just going on the trip, she'd stop praying and she'd say, she'd say, now young lady, I don't know your name. Jesus knows it, but Pauline does it. And so she'd tell, she'd tell her name and she'd get back in her prayer, you know, pray for her, pray for him, pray for him. What happened? What was happening? Those students knew that Pauline and Georgia loved them. They knew that they were important and cared for. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about having a church that's a family that loves one another, that old folks and young folks love one another, care for one another, and are there for one another. That's, that's what he's getting at here. That's what we need here. That we, we care for, when I, the church, the little church I grew up in, up until I, and, and, until junior high, senior high when I uh, got my driver's license, but the church that I grew up in, everybody was brother and sister. You know, there was Brother Vale, and Sister Van Dyne, and Aunt Myrtle. She was nobody's aunt, but that's what we called her, Aunt Myrtle. It wasn't weird. It, wasn't, it was just the way we talked. Why? Because that church was a family. That's what Paul is getting at here. If, if the church in Ephesus, Timothy, is going to be the church that is pleased with, you're going to treat one another as family. He goes on to talk about, about uh, uh, caring and showing proper respect. I think that boils down to the word honor. Uh, in my dictionary, there's Honolulu before honor and honor afterwards and honor in between. And it's saying we need to care for, we need to respect, we need to show proper um, care for those people younger and older than us. At every, 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 every wedding that I ever officiate, I always ask the bride and the groom, will you promise to love, honor, cherish, till death do us part? And the bride always says, yes, I will love, honor, cherish, till death to his part. And the groom says, yes, I will love, honor, cherish, till death to his part. And I wish that they, they always kept those vows, that promise, the most important promise, but they don't always. And respect and honor is taking a back seat. You know that. Just look around. You see how our society is. Honor and respect have taken a back seat. But Paul is saying, not so in the church. We need to love, honor, and respect. In, in fact, in the book of Romans, he said, be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourself. That's what he's talking about here in 1 Timothy in verse 3. He says, give proper recognition, honor, honor, honor to those widows who are really in need. Give proper recognition. He's not saying, ta-da, look who's here, it's Widow Wilma. No, that's not his point. He's saying honor, it's taking care of them, it's, it's noticing them, it's providing for them, it's giving them a place of, of growth and space to flourish in the community. Most Bible scholars think that in the first century when Paul is writing this letter, that, that the life expectancy, especially of men, was very low. And so when he's talking about widows, he's not talking about 90-year-olds or 70-year-olds or, or 80-year-olds. He's talking about 40-year-olds. And in, in the first century, 40-year-old women had no means of support. There was no social security. There was no you know, life insurance plans. There was nothing like that. And so... And, and, and in most cases, women couldn't work. 
And so they were in real trouble. And if it wasn't for, for the church, Paul is saying, we, the, you know, they'd be in real trouble because God has always cared for those that society overlooks. In Psalm 68, it says, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. Psalm 146, the Lord watches over the foreigner, sustains the fatherless and the widow, but frustrates the way of the wicked. Widows, orphans, strangers, God has always noticed and seen and cared for those that the rest of society has overlooked. And Paul is saying the same thing. Hey, in the church, we need to care for one another. We need to look out for one, old, young, whatever, it doesn't matter. We need to care for one another. Luke, when he was writing about the early church, said this, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. From time to time, those who owned land or, or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. That's the, Paul's point to Timothy. That's the church. Old, young, wealthy, poor, Black, white, sick, ma sick, healthy, male, female, doesn't matter. That's the church. We care for one another. We're a family. That's Paul's point. Paul goes on to say this in verse 5. The widow who is really in need, when left all alone, puts her hope in God and continues night and day and prays for those who ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. Give the people these instructions so that no one may be open to blame. Paul is saying, listen, even as it relates to, to widows or anyone in society, you know this, not everyone looks to Jesus for help. Not everyone is in the same boat. Some folks who are, are, are certainly needy, they cry out to God, they seek God, they, they look for God to help, and God does. But then there's others who don't. And Paul is saying whether they do or whether they don't, the, the job of the church is to reach out and care and love. When I was, uh, one of the churches here, we have, you know, Angel Tree, and we have people come, and we, at Christmas time, we have a big to-do, and we, and we give them gifts and boxes of food and all sorts of stuff. Well, as one church has that, we delivered groceries and, and, and boxes and presents and things to, to people, needy folks at Christmas. And so we did that, and we were going to this one place. There was two houses that I was delivering to uh, that were right across the street from one another. And so I went to the one house, and knocked on the door, and this sweet older, I'm sure she was a widow lady, came to the door. In her house, she invited us in. It was spick and span. You could have eaten off the floor. And it was very obvious. She didn't have much. She was very, very poor. Didn't have hardly anything. And she was so thankful. Oh, she was thankful. Oh, you're so kind to bring us this Christmas box. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And, and it was just a wonderful time. We prayed for her. And then she said, no, 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 I want to pray for you. And she prayed for us. And and it was just like, wow, this is why we do it. Praise the Lord. This is a wonderful time. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And we all, you know, Merry Christmas, all the rest. And then I went across the street. And I was still all hyped up from visiting the nice widow lady. And, and I went across the street, knocked on the door, nobody came. Knocked on the door, nobody came. Knocked on the door. This guy finally opens the door. All disheveled. The house was a wreck, capital W, wreck. It was a mess. What do you want? Oh, we're here, Christmas. Put it over there. And he turned around and walked away. No Merry Christmas, no thank you. And then we weren't doing it for the thank yous, but it just reminded me. You know, some people, some people, some people, they, they cry out to God for help. And God helps. God comes, we call that prevenient grace. When you're seeking God, God is seeking you first, and he reaches you and cares for you. But then there's other people who just, you know, who just don't. 
And I, and I thought about those folks and I thought, you know, that one lady, she didn't have hardly anything, but I bet she had a Merry Christmas. That other guy, wouldn't surprise me if he didn't. See, you get what you're looking for. If you're the type of person that is looking for, for, for God's goodness and God's blessings and God's care, then, then God will work and move. If you're the type of person, though, that finds the dark lining on every silver cloud, then you're going to get what you're looking for. If you're the type of person that's looking for faults or problems or mistakes, you're going to find them. You know, if you look for faults and mistakes in people, in churches, you know, we ain't perfect. If you start looking for those things, you're going to find it. Look at it, you'll find them. But if you're looking for grace and God's goodness and God's blessing, you'll find that too. All right, well, that's Paul's lesson. He's saying, you know, not everybody is in the same boat. And then he goes on to say this. This is, that's all about the church. And, and this sermon series is called, called Home Cooking. And he's talking about the church, but he talks about our homes as well. In verse 8 and verse 4, he says this in verse 8. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith, and get this, and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow! No, tell us what you really think, Paul. That's pretty strong. Denied the faith, worse than an unbeliever. In verse 4, back in verse 4, I didn't read it. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. Paul is taking serious our call to care for one another, put our religion into practice. How do we care for our, our loved ones? It's putting our religion into practice. You want to examine a person's faith? How are they treating their parents? How are they treating their grandparents? Are they putting their religion into practice? Because that's what pleases God. See, my folks, my folks didn't require a whole lot of, of care like many, many elderly folks do. I'm thankful, you know, when my, after my dad died, my sister lived in Michigan. My other sister lived at first in, in Texas, and then they moved to England with missionary service, and my brother was pastoring in Illinois, and I was pastoring in Kansas, and so I was thankful, thankful, thankful that my sister was here and cared for my mom. My, but my mom didn't need a whole, whole lot of care. She lived in her own place, could drive, things like that. So my folks, my folks, um, neither one of them needed, you know, both for, for both of my parents... It was three weeks from diagnosis to death. You know, they were, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. Three weeks later, he was in heaven. My mom had a heart attack. Three weeks later, she didn't survive surgery. So they didn't require, they were never in a nursing home. They never were in assisted living. They always lived in their own place. If they could have written the script, that would have been the way they wrote it. They would have, they would have you know, they both knew that, that they may not survive. My mom knew that she may not survive that surgery. They would have written the script exactly the way things happened. That hasn't been the case in Carla's folks' case. And, and, you know, it's been a different story for us. And Carla has repeatedly showed me what it means to be a daughter and, and to care for, for parents. And that's, you know, in this day and age, Paul is saying, listen, you've got to put your religion into practice. You say Jesus has filled your life. You say that Jesus has made a difference. You've got to put your religion into practice. We had a lady this week. You know, as you all know, COVID has been horrible. Not just on those that are, are sick and dying. Just this week, my neighbor, my neighbor was only 64 years old, um, passed away with complications due to COVID. He was pretty healthy. And we ended up praying with his wife on Friday. She came home and, and we saw them get out of the car. We were out working in our yard and we knew that it was not good news. And so we met them midway in between our two houses and prayed for her and her kids. 
COVID has been horrible. But it's not only been horrible in those circumstances, it's been horrible when people have been isolated and shut in and, and couldn't get out. And people in hospitals can't have their family come and visit them. One of the hospitals will remain nameless. Wouldn't let anybody in, up until just a couple weeks ago, wouldn't let anybody in, even pastors. I've only been in, you know, like when people are dying, dying, then they let me in. But, but now they've opened it up so pastors could go in. We have a lady in a church, she was in the first service, sitting right back there. Um, I found out her dad had a stroke and I had known her dad. And so, uh, and he was in, no one could go and visit him. And so on Tuesday this week, I, I said, hey, I'll, I'll go up and visit him and, and pray with him. And I got up to the hospital. It was just so sad. It was incredibly, incredibly sad because there was no one around. He was in the room all by himself. It was obvious that he was in great distress. I guess that's the way I put it. He was so happy to see me. And we prayed and I stayed there probably longer than I normally would just because I felt just so bad for that circumstance. And I ended up leaving and I didn't get very far and that's when, that was the same day that, that Brother Thurman passed away and so I ended up going over, over uh, to their house and was there for quite a while and didn't get back to my place and so when I finally got back I texted uh, the family, the guy in the hospital said, listen, I was up there, I saw him and prayed with them, spent some time with them and we're going to keep on praying for him. It was just really sad. And so his daughter, his daughter is the, the champion because what his daughter, again, no one could go in except pastors. So you know what she did? She went to one of those online ordination services. <laughs> I've been, you know, I've been poo-pooing those things for years, you know. You just write in, you answer a few questions. I don't even know what the questions are. Does Jesus live on the moon? I don't know what she answered. And she got her ordination certificate. And so Thursday, Friday, so she's been able to go and visit her dad because now she's a pastor. <laughs> Man, oh man, why did I go to seminary? I could have just, you know. She's putting her faith into practice. She's saying, my parents are important. And, and I got to do whatever I got to do so that I can be with my dad at this time. That's what we're talking about here. We can live in the past and be gripped by it. Or we can live into God's glorious future. Remember when I talked to you about, you know, you can see the dark clouds or you can see God shining through. It depends on what you want to look for. One of the saddest days I had as pastor is um, I went with a, a guy from the church to a court hearing where his dad was being sentenced to, uh, was going to end up being a long prison term. And the judge, you know, I, I can't even remember the dad's crimes, quite honestly. But I remember the judge just letting the dad have it. You know, going over all the things that he did and how terrible it was. And he was going to jail and he deserved it. And the dad, you know, when that was done, they put him in handcuffs and they let him out of the courtroom. And I turned to his son. I said, I'm so sorry you had to hear all that. I'm sorry that, that that's your dad and I'm sorry that that's all happened and my heart was breaking for this guy and he turned to me and he said pastor he goes don't worry about me I lost respect for my dad years ago my dad was never there for me and my brother never cared for us he dropped us off when we were little I don't respect him 
it was just a sad, heartbreaking day when you saw the family dynamic so messed up. Well, here's the rest of that story. That dad got out of jail eventually. And, and I wish I could tell you he had a, some kind of jailhouse conversion. He didn't. He continued to be a jerk and continued to make bad choices and continued to, to do the things that he was doing before he went in jail. But then he got sick. Like, deathly sick. And that son, who had lost all respect for his dad, that son, whose dad had dropped him off when he was just a boy, that dad who really never did one good thing in his son's life, that son said, Dad, why don't you come to my house? And I'll take care of you. And for his remaining days, that son, you know, when someone's in hospice care, he was bathing him, he was caring for him, he was doing all of those things. It wasn't easy. Two weeks before his dad died, his dad saw the love of Jesus in his son that was undeniable. And he accepted Jesus in his life. And if that man was here today, you would say, was it worth it bringing your dad into your house and taking care of him when he didn't deserve it? He didn't earn it. He was a scoundrel. Was it worth it? He would tell you, are you kidding me? Of course it was worth it. He was putting his religion into practice. That's what I'm telling you. We can talk all the things we want to talk about of God and his blessings and his goodness. We got to put it into practice with our family, with our loved ones, even those that don't deserve it. It's forgiving them and moving forward. I know sometimes we think, well, my goodness, they don't. Listen, let God handle all of the junk. That's his job. Our job is just to put our religion into practice and love and forgive and trust Jesus is going to take care of it.